passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. If you're new at Crosswinds, it's uh, great to have you here on this Memorial Day weekend. We are in a series right now where we're working our way through studying the Ten Commandments. We actually began with an introduction to the Ten Commandments two weeks ago. Took a little pause last week. We had graduation Sunday, had a chance to enjoy that. So we're going to get back into the Ten Commandments today. But before we actually begin with studying the first commandment, I'd like to remind you of what we learned as it's true of the commandments in general that we studied two weeks ago. It's sort of the theme of our series, so I want to go back to this again and again. And it's right on the top of your outline. So take your outlines out and get ready to follow along with me. It's this. After God set his people free, he gave them the Ten Commandments to keep his people free. See, God didn't say, if you do these 10 things and you get a 100% score on getting them right, then I will save you. (laughs) No, actually, God freed his people in the Old Testament from Egypt completely by his undeserved mercy, completely by his undeserved grace. They were in a situation where there's absolutely nothing they could do to save themselves. Yet God, on his own initiative, his own grace and kindness, chose to free them. And after he freed them, then he gave them the Ten Commandments. So it's this way. The Ten Commandments come after God's grace. They don't come to earn God's grace. That's super important. And folks, it's the same thing for us, isn't it? Because when... Um, We were started out in a complete and total mess. We started out as slaves to sin and death. We started out, there's nothing we could do to save ourselves from our slavery to sin and death. But God decided to send a deliverer. And this deliverer was much greater than Moses, wasn't he? This deliverer was his own son, Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ, we are given undeserved grace. We are set free from Satan, sin, and death. And the salvation that is brought by Jesus Christ is not just a salvation that is enough for us, but ultimately, it's a salvation that extends to the entire universe because he is such a great Savior and Redeemer. Now, just as God's people could only trust in God to save them in the Old Testament and bring them out of Egypt, and by the way, he did, it's the same for us. All we can do is trust in God to save us through his son Jesus, and he will. That's what he did. So the Ten Commandments, the big thing we want to understand is they came after God's grace, not to earn God's grace. Ten, the Ten Commandments, as we study them, we need to understand they all are, come from God's love. Their whole intention is to keep us from returning to slavery, to sin. They're given to us for our good. They're given to us for our joy and for our life. And I hope this reframes your whole study of the Ten Commandments because like, oh no, ten things I have to do. And it's like, no, 
God gives these to you because he loves us. As it says in Psalm 119, verse 47, you know, God, the psalmist says, I delight in your commandments. And we too delight in God's laws. So let us go ahead and look at this first commandment and let it be our love and our joy. And here it is in the top of your outline, Exodus 22 through 3. It says, I, the Lord, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And God's command is simply this. You worship me, and you worship me alone. Remember who I am. I am the one who brought you out of the house of slavery. Remember what I did. Don't let your hearts wander after other gods and give your love and affection to them. Now, that seems sort of basic, doesn't it? Why did God think it important to start with this as the first commandment? Well, I did a little research, and you learned that, obviously, the Israelites spent 400 years in Egypt. And what you discover is that Egypt is one of the most polytheistic cultures out there. Now, for those of you who just got, like, confused with that big word, polytheism simply means worshiping multiple gods, I did a little research of like, how many gods do these guys worship? I'll give you a little sampling here. They worshiped Amun, who was the king of the gods. Anub, who was the god of mummification. Atum, who was the god who gave birth to the other gods. And that's just part of the list of A's. We haven't even gotten to the rest of the letters of the alphabet yet. They worshiped the gods of the fields, rivers, fertility, love, war, light, darkness, sun, uh, storms. So the Egyptians figured this, you know, we're going to have a God for everything. We'll have our bases covered that way. And for those of you who know the New Testament, it reminds you of Paul in Athens, doesn't it? We're going to have everything covered. Now here's the, the thing you need to understand historically. When the Israelites spent 400 years in Egypt, this idea that there's a cornucopia of different gods and we have to cover all of our bases by worshiping all of them has really rubbed off on them. Worshiping the one true God of the universe, it is not something that comes naturally to them. In my research, I ran across a very interesting passage in Ezekiel. Let me give you the context, then we'll read it. This passage in Ezekiel talks about um, what it was like for the Israelites in Egypt before they were freed by Moses. And it says that a number of times, God consistently tried to turn them away from worshiping the false gods of Egypt, but they refused. And God was so angry at them because they kept wanting to go after false gods, that he was ready to destroy them. Yet out of his grace and kindness, he decided not to, and to save them anyway through Moses. So that shows you how deeply embedded the worship of other gods is for them. Let's read this in Ezekiel, and you'll get a good picture of what's going on. It says, And I said to them, Cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, And do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. 
but they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on. None of them, notice that. Nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. They're still in Egypt at this point. And God's getting ready to like smote them. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. In other words, God is trying to break their heart. Say, hey, I'm the only one out there. (laughs) Worship me alone. Stop going after these other gods in Egypt. And then you put that knowledge into the context of how God freed them with 10 plagues. Each one of those plagues was designed to say, guess what? You think God is, there's a God of the Nile? Let me show you who the real God of the Nile is. Every one of those plagues were over and against the Egyptian gods. Oh, you think that Pharaoh's really in charge? Try walking across the Red Sea on dry ground. And when he comes back, I'll show you what I'll do and drown them all. You come to Mount Sinai. Remember we did this two weeks ago. We read about what it was like at Mount Sinai where the mountain was wrapped in fire and smoke. It was a constant earthquake. And when Moses spoke, God answered him in thunder. Why is there such a shock and awe experience going on? So the people are like, oh, guess what? The gods of Egypt never did this. (laughs) They never saved us. (laughs) They never did anything for us. Maybe this is the one true God of the universe. You see why there's all these powerful things going on? He's trying to say, worship me alone. Now, let me give you some other reasons here why God says this. Why does God insist on exclusive worship? Uh, as you look through the Bible, you find this. Number one, idols can do absolutely nothing for you. And I think this is such a good picture from Jeremiah. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. Sorry, farmers, I had to help you out with that one. They cannot speak. They have to be carried. They cannot walk. Don't be afraid of them. They cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. Picture that. An idol is no different than a scarecrow. It can't speak, can't walk, can't help you. Think about how silly and foolish it is to pour out your affections and energy to a scarecrow when the one true God of the universe loves you and cares about you. But to be honest, even though idols themselves may be nothing more than scarecrows, the Bible tells us that doesn't mean that all idols are powerless. Demons are behind idols many times. That's what it says in the scriptures. Psalm 106, 37 through 38. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. 
when they sacrificed their sons and daughters to idols, they were sacrificing their sons and daughters to demons. This is why God says, worship me and worship me alone. You see, God is committed to your life. He's committed to your freedom. He's committed to your redemption to take away your sin because he loves you. But what are the idols committed to? To doing either nothing for you or demons. And what do demons want to do to our life? Bring us into slavery, bring us into bondage, and ultimately bring us into death. So when God says, worship me and worship me alone, folks, it's for our freedom. It's for our life. Any place else we go, will end up in death. And just so you know, this is not just an Old Testament thing. This is a New Testament thing. I put this in our outlines, 1 Corinthians 10, 20. And I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participant with demons. So we know God says, worship me because an idol is just a scarecrow. Worship me because not only that, but if there is something behind an idol, it's a demon. But here's the next thing he says. Worship me because our hearts are prone to wander. They really are. You would think that after seeing the 10 plagues that God put on the nation of Egypt and seeing Egypt reduced uh, basically to being destroyed and seeing uh, the Red Sea and seeing uh, the giving of the Ten Commandments at the quaking mountain that people would get the message. You know, we have the one true God of the universe here. Let us be faithful to him. But here is what's so incredibly amazing. You trace your finger through the scriptures and what you find is even after all of this shock and awe stuff, God's people still go after other idols. Go just one generation later. Go to Joshua, about ready to go into the promised land. Remember what has gone on at this point. They've seen all this other stuff, plus they've had manna, like daily. They've had water from a rock twice. And what does Joshua have to say to the people? Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Like, this is a generation later. Are you guys still holding on to the gods of Egypt after everything he's done to you? And then Joshua says, if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Apparently, their hearts are quite prone to wonder, aren't they? To serving other gods than the one true God of the universe who has saved them and done everything for them. Still the gods of Egypt. You go a little further into biblical history. And what do we find? We find this with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Then Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long you go limping between two different opinions? I mean, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And notice this. And the people did not answer him a word. 
is this really up for debate, guys? Why don't they say, well, we know what the right answer is. It's because our hearts are prone to wonder. Now, here's the thing. Not only were their hearts prone to wonder, but folks, let's be honest. Our hearts are prone to wonder too. Our hearts are prone to wonder after false gods. False gods that can do absolutely nothing for us. False gods that if there's anything behind them, it's demonic and ultimately it will enslave us and bring us into bondage. This is why this first commandment is the first commandment. This is why this first commandment is not just for the Old Testament people, but folks, it's also for us in the New Testament times. In fact, Jesus, as we learned two weeks ago, takes each of these commandments, or at least Jesus or the apostles, and restates them and reinforces them. Look how Jesus restates and reinforces this first commandment. In Matthew 22, 36 through 38. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the greatest and the first in other words, Jesus says, if we can just get this one right, you know, a lot of the other ones just sort of naturally fall in line because everything else sort of orientates around the fact that our hearts are prone to wonder after a false God that can do absolutely nothing for us. So let's ask this question. Since our hearts are prone to wonder, just like ancient Israel, how can we keep our hearts fixed on Jesus? How? I have two things for you here. The first one is this. Remember that God is our lover, not our kidnapper. Imagine if you were kidnapped by somebody. They took you far away. They said, you have to love me. You have to love me alone. I don't care what you think. I don't care what you want. I'm going to force you to love me. Would you do it? Well, if you did, I'll tell you one thing. Certainly wouldn't come from your heart. <laughs> Not because you want to. But take it from a different stance. Imagine that you meet someone and you are dating someone and you fall in love with someone and you're talking about getting married with someone and that person says to you, I love you. I want to give my entire life to be with you, to serving you, and to caring with you. I passionately love you. The, I ask, would you love me? And would you love me alone? How can you resist? It's a whole different motivation when it comes from love. Well, God says to you, Will you please love me and love me alone? And by the way, I love you. I love you so much more than you could ever, even begin to comprehend or imagine. Here's what God says. I love you so much that I sent my own son to die the hideous death on a cross. But not just death on a cross, to take all of your sin 
and to put it on my own son and to take all of my own son's purity, righteousness, and holiness and to give it to you. That is how much I love you. Not only that, but he says, my desire is to take you home to heaven. And as we learn in the book of Ephesians, God's desire for all of eternity is that our identity would be as Christians the most blessed beings in the entire universe. Literally adopted sons and daughters of God himself. And we deserve none of this. And God says, it's because I love you. Would you be faithful to me? Think of it this way. Think of it in a husband and wife relationship. You love your spouse, don't you? What would it be like if your wife said, well, I love you, but I, I, there's actually somebody else I'd like to talk to on occasions. <laughs> what would you feel in your heart? Doesn't go well, does it? That's the same way God feels because he loves us so incredibly deeply. So when it comes to being faithful to God and loving him alone, the first thing we need to do is always remember he is our lover, the greatest lover there ever will be. He's not our kidnapper. The other thing we have to remember really practically is we have to keep our relationship with Jesus fresh. Every relationship needs to stay fresh if it's gonna stay active. You guys are married know that, don't you? You better spend time with your wife. You better spend time with your husband. In fact, if you start to neglect spending time with your spouse, don't you find your heart prone to wander <laughs> and to maybe develop affections for something or someone else? You need to have maintenance in there. It's no different than our relationship with Jesus. Folks, I've always told you, I encourage you, I beg you, take regular time during the week to read God's word. Just read a chapter. If you can't read it, like, Five days a week, read it three days a week. Keep your finger in the text. God will use that time to cultivate love for him. And it'll help you not to wonder. Be regular in attendance at life group. Be regular in attendance in, in church because God uses that to cultivate the relationship with him, to keep it fresh. Because usually we're prone to wonder after a false God when we fail to cultivate our relationships with the, our relationship with the true God. Oh, one more point here. I'm going to mention this. What's God's competition for us today? What are the false idols that are out there? Now, I want to tell you these next two points, how we're going to do. We're going to start on a real high level and look at the sort of false idols that can pull us away. And then we're going to increasingly get personal and may get a little too personal for some of you and uncomfortable at the end, but it's good. It's good. So let's begin with this. What is God's competition? Number one, it's false religions. You saw that in the ancient world where they had literally idols and people would worship those, but those, there are still idols out there today. Hindus, have you ever been to a Hindu temple? they have between 3,000 to 330,000 or even more idols that they literally worship. You know, put meat in front of it, fruit in front of it, dress it in the morning, all that kind of stuff. They worship idols. Um, Muslims, they worship an idol. <laughs> they worship a powerful demon. 
His name is called Allah. That's a false religion. And many people say, well, aren't all religions sort of the same? Well, this is what the the scriptures say. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All religions are not the same. Or Acts 4.12. For there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So there are some what we call overt, false gods out there that people go after. Probably most of us aren't doing that. I told you I'd start high level. But there's also some covert false gods that we could be more subtly deceived into. And many of those things are not a physical entity, but a, should we call it, a cultural feel. And I want to talk about the first one. It's called pluralism. You want to write that down. Pluralism is the belief that all religions are essentially the same. Or all religions have a little piece of the truth. You hear this. You know, it doesn't matter what you believe, but what matters is that you are religious. That is what we believe in our culture today. To show you how deeply embedded this is in our culture, I ran across this statistic in my study this week. 1993, the Church of Scotland had a resolution on their annual gathering, and it was this, that they would believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to have it. This is like the Church of Scotland. It was defeated, 400 to 300. They do not believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. Apparently they missed like 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Or they missed Isaiah 43, 11. I, I am the Lord and besides me there is no other. And this is not just in Scotland, by the way. Another survey I ran across said that three-quarters of Americans believe multiple religions lead to eternal life. They believe you could have other gods out there. And that's pluralism. Now, folks, pluralism, as I just mentioned, is not biblically true. But if you think about this, if you want to dialogue with someone, realize it can't be logically true either. It isn't. If all religions are essentially the same and they're all heading in the same direction, why do we have a problem with a terrorist getting on a plane and flying into a building? Because they think they're doing God's will and getting themselves sent to paradise. We say that's murder. That's terrible. But that's what they believe. You see, it can't logically both be true at the same time. Why do we say that uh, Hindus? Because the Hindu belief traditionally was that when a husband dies in his funeral fire, his wife was to be burned alive with him. We say, that's wrong. That's murder. Why do we say that? Because all religions can't be true. That's why. So pluralism is a sort of a cultural thing that, that's in our fabric that often causes us to really have to disagree with, with it because there's only one God out there. Another thing that I want to mention is something called syncretism. While pluralism says all faiths are essentially the same, syncretism says you can mix faiths together and just sort of like will it blend, just put it all together. 
the biggest way you see syncretism taking place right now in, in Christendom is many churches are saying with this like gay and lesbian debate, you know, well, hey, you know, God's really not against homosexuals. Homosexuals is really not a bad thing. And, you know, but the Bible doesn't say that. Maybe some of you uh, uh, saw this in the news this past week, and I hope I'm quoting this right. I did some research to check it out because a friend in church uh, mentioned this to me, and they wanted an answer. Apparently, um, Pope, uh, Pope Francis said to a gay man, God made you like this and loves you like this. And there was a lot of news saying, oh, look, see, God has been like pro-homosexual all along. And the reason he would say that is because of syncretism, blending cultural beliefs with his Christian beliefs, because that's not what the Bible says, folks. Let me show you. Romans chapter 1. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So what happens is, it says, it begins this way. People exchange worshiping the true God for worshiping images that resemble things, like man and birds. Like we start with idolatry. This is a violation of the first commandment right here. And then it gives a couple other things, and it comes down, and this says, this is what it logically leads to. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Homosexuality is the logical extension of what happens when somebody violates the first commandment we're studying today. It's what Romans says. You start worshiping an image, and your religion gets twisted. You continue worshiping an image, and even your sexuality gets twisted. God didn't make the people that way, and God does not celebrate people that way. Just like heterosexual sin, he calls them to repent of their homosexual sin and worship him and him alone. Well, let's get more personal. We've talked on big levels. Let's go into our inner life. What can, how can I identify false gods in my life? Like false gods that are in my heart. You know, what I long for can reveal a false god in my life. What does your mind think on when it shifts into neutral? I have a question. Well, maybe it's something that you enjoy. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with having things that we enjoy. God has given us things to enjoy. Look what it says in 1 Timothy 6.17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. When you have something you like, it's okay to enjoy it, but let it all of a sudden result in more praise and more gratitude and more thankfulness to God who has given you that gift. Don't worship that gift, but worship the giver of the gift. But the question is this, what did your mind think on when you have free time and you shift into neutral? 
that can become a false god. Maybe you're a single lady this morning and you're tired of being single. You're like, I have to have a man. I, I have to have a husband. You're consumed with that thought. You dream on that thought. You think on that thought. Every thought is about the man you don't have. And that man you don't have has become your idol because it's the center of your life. Maybe for you, it's a, it's a car. I want a new car. I've got to get a new car. I'm always looking at that new car. I'm, I'm looking on YouTube to check out that new car. Is that become an idol in your life? That that's all you think about? And here's the problem, by the way. Did you ever notice this? Once you finally get your idol, does it ever satisfy? Absolutely not. I told you, it enslaves you. Number two, what I turn to in times of stress can reveal my false god. You ever hear people that say, you know, it's a really stressful day. I need, I need a drink. It's a really good day, by the way. I need a drink. <laughs> it's a really long weekend. It's Memorial Day. It's time for a drink. What all of a sudden has become their false god? The bottle. <laughs> That's what they're turning to. The way I handle food can reveal a false god. Did you realize that? It says their god is their belly. Some people live to eat. Some people, when they get to stress, all they want to eat. Well, when they have a good day, all they want to do is eat. And food can become a false god that we worship. Number four, the way I spend my free time can reveal a false god. You know, there's nothing wrong with hobbies. There's nothing wrong with things that are fun. But if they become the absolute center of your life, they have become the false god of your life. You know, for uh, young adults right now, it's video games. Fortnite, you know? Fortnite, not a bad game. Nothing wrong with that. You know, hey, it's a good thing to play. But if that becomes the center of your life, and that is what you do all the time in your life, that has now become the false god of your life. Because instead of centering your life around the one true God of the universe who loves you, you centered your life around a game that ultimately will end up enslaving you when a good thing has now become a God thing. Number five, conditions I put on God can reveal a false God in my life. Do you ever pray to God and give him a condition? Like, okay, you know, God, I'll go wherever you want me to go as long as I don't leave this town because I love my house. Uh, what's the real God there? Your house. And you're playing, let's make a deal with the real God so you can continue to have your false God. You see how that works? Let me give you one last piece that can reveal an idol that's in our life. And this, by the way, may get too close. I told you we were going to start big and then get close. This may get uncomfortable for some of you here this morning. But the Bible says it's true. My financial giving reveals the truth about the place that God holds in my life. It does. The Bible says this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, what you treasure in your heart is what you will do with the money in your life. 
And when it comes to your giving, giving to Christ and his church, what does your checkbook say is the real God in your life? We spend money on what's important to us. We spend money on what we love. Does your checkbook say that God comes first? God gets what's best, and I trust him to live on the rest? Or does your checkbook say that I come first? And rather than giving to God, my God is actually a higher standard of living. So I put myself first. And uh, he may get a little something left over. Your checkbook can honestly reveal that there's a false God in your life. And that false God is probably a higher standard of living and an unwillingness to give to him and then trust him to meet your needs. The false God is called affluence. We struggle to see who we'll put first. The scriptures say this, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You have to decide who the real God is in your life. Your standard of living in your checkbook or the one God of the universe who loves you so much that he gave his own son to die for you. And he says, give to me and trust me to provide for your needs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for beginning the Ten Commandments with this commandment to not have any other gods before us, before you. We realize, Father, that our hearts are prone to wonder. We're no different than the Israelites in the Old Testament. Our hearts are little idol factories where we will make uh, things we enjoy. We can make food. We can make all kinds of good things into God things that we worship instead of you. And when we do, we know that all of that just leads to slavery. But putting you first leads to freedom. This morning, I know there are some who want to confess to you. Confess they've chosen a higher standard of living than a higher standard of giving. That the God in their life has been affluence rather than giving to you, giving to you first, giving sacrificially and giving joyfully, and then trusting you to provide their needs. Lord, I thank you that when we are, uh, confess our sin to you, that you are quick to forgive us of our sins and to welcome us with open arms. And for those this morning who are confessing the sin of having another God in their life, I thank you, Lord, that you have open arms today and full forgiveness to offer. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.